Good morning, everyone. I'm excited and grateful to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Though we are in different places in worship, it is the Spirit of God that unites us under the preached Word. And I am so thankful for that. We're going to pause for a few weeks in our study of 2 Peter and look at a few other passages, the New Testament and the Psalms, uh, that just encourage us, give us some perspective on how we respond in times like we're in now, in times of great challenge and trial. And uh, this morning we're going to look at the letter of James together. But when you find a letter in your mailbox, where is the first place that you typically look? Uh, For me, I'm looking in that top left corner at that return address. Who is this person? What is my relationship to them? And we open God's Word into a letter of the New Testament. We are asking ourselves uh, similar questions. Uh, Who is writing? What is the occasion? What are the themes? What is going on in the background here? And this morning we're going to do that in the letter of James. And like you would expect from a letter from a family member or a close friend, there is a lot that James packs in in a short amount of space. He moves quickly from one issue to the next. Uh, Doesn't provide a whole lot of background or the themes that he's addressing. If you try to narrow down James to a certain theme, it's very challenging because he uses short, pithy words of instruction, words of warning, encouragement, a lot like we would find in the Old Testament Proverbs. And this is something we like. We like short, simple instruction on how to live as Christians. That's why James is one of the most often quoted letters in the New Testament. His instruction is simple, it's practical, but like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, it's deep, demands a heart response. A belief in the Gospel that is genuine is a belief from the heart that transforms the rest of life. Before we get any more background, we're going to read the first 12 verses, this very powerful and practical letter. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him is God's holy word to us, his people. Please pray with me. Our great and mighty God, we are grateful for your word. 
that You would condescend in this way to speak to us, lisp to us as Your covenant children. Lord, help us now as we consider Your Word. We think of how quickly the grass withers and the flowers fade away. We think that the beauty just is there one moment and it's gone, but not so of Your Word. Your Word remains. Your Word endures. Your truth, the promises that You give, remain. Lord, encourage us, teach us, admonish us, and comfort us with Your Word on this day. We pray this in the name of the living Word, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Last fall, our family received some discouraging news got a phone call that my nephew Cody, who is a senior, he's a senior this year, uh, was playing in one of his soccer games. It was early in the season, and uh, in a hard play, he hit the ground in great pain, and they took him off the field, and he received his own ambulance ride and learned that uh, he had broken his leg, and it would require surgery before casting. And this was really hard for Cody. It's a senior year. Uh, last season was a great season for the team, and so they had high hopes for this season and the starting player, and now all of that uh, was dashed after one play. And uh, I, I thought of Cody as I was reading through James 1 this week. It would have been of very little comfort for me to get Cody on the phone and say, you know what, Cody? You should be really glad that this happened. God is using this for your good. So no more moping about. Let's see some joy, some appreciation for what God is doing. That would not be very comforting. In fact, that would be you know, rather insensitive for what my nephew is going through. Is that what James is doing here? Is he just being insensitive to what it is we're going through. You know, schools are not meeting right now. There are jobs in question. We're not able to meet together. We're not able to see our family members as often. Does James know how hard social distancing can be for some of us? Isolation for days, maybe weeks on end. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, but when you are tested. Difficult circumstances, trials, testing can really stretch our faith. And it's not easy for us to believe. Thinking about the the purpose of our trial and enduring it with joy, typically not on the, the forefront of our minds. We feel abandoned. We feel let down. Disappointed. Maybe even hurt. I've I've felt that way these last couple of weeks. But James reminds us that we must endure. Patiently allowing this trial to reach its intended goal in our lives. And historically, I believe it's most likely that this letter is coming from the James that spent his life growing up with Jesus and is now a well-known leader in the early church particularly those who are in Jerusalem, who are being forced out of Jerusalem. Maybe you remember what happened in Acts chapter 8. Stephen, just a courageous man of the faith, is stoned. Saul is present there. And 
Now as a devout Pharisee, he's moving out from Jerusalem on his road to Damascus to bring charges against Christians. So under persecution, they're being scattered around Judea and Samaria. And it's these Jewish converts then who themselves are now facing isolation and imprisonment when they receive this letter from James to rejoice. God has not abandoned them. And in fact, quite the opposite as they go through these trials. I want us to see how James instructs the church then, how he instructs us now to approach times of trial and what our motivation is in doing that. He calls us to perseverance, uh, the need for a proper perspective to persevere, all because we have a great promise. What is the attitude of our hearts in times of trial? Trial we may be facing right now as families, as a church. Pastor Gomna, he stood in the mud and he was speaking to his congregation just a couple of weeks after their church had been burned to the ground by uh, Muslims. And then they had gone, they, they went and, and burned Pastor Gomna's house as well. And uh, he stood up and he speaks to his brothers and sisters all recovering from this trauma. Uh, what he says to them is, is just remarkable. He says, I'm grateful that they did not burn my church. So In shock, everyone, what do you, what do you mean? He said, I'm, in as much as no church member died in the crisis, they did not burn our church. They only burned the building. And then he said, I'm grateful that they burned my house as well. Now I know what you're experiencing and can be a better pastor to you. That is a real gut check uh, to the call uh, to any church leader called to serve uh, the church. But was, was Pastor Gomna excited that his church and home had burned to the ground? Was he just jumping for joy that they now had to rebuild? Well, of course not. Was my nephew on his knees praising God for a broken leg the moment after it happened? Well, no. And that is not what uh, James is doing. Not his expectation with these words. Pure joy is not the only emotion or response to trials. But it's an occasion for it. Like how the New Living Translation renders this. An opportunity for great joy. This isn't just a one-time trial. These trials are going to, to keep coming and take all different forms. But however they come, it's an opportunity, an occasion to rejoice. So given our default response and our human experience, we know this doesn't mean just putting on a happy face and saying, well, you know, God's got it. Joy goes deeper than just the circumstantial happiness. Someone can be happy for a time, but not very joyful. We can still be hurting. We can still be angry and frustrated in the trial without losing that state of joy as God's beloved children. Joy that we're His. Joy that He doesn't make mistakes. Joy that He knows perfectly what is best. Joy that there's no wasted uh, testing of our faith. 
Joy gives us a deeper satisfaction in the purposes of God that any fleeting emotion of happiness can bring. Which doesn't mean that joy and happiness are entirely separated or distinct from each other. Our feelings of happiness and delight will often grow as we consider and meditate on the joy that is ours in the Lord. Remember several years ago when the Supreme Court made that decision recognizing or for all intents and purposes endorsing a definition of marriage in a lifestyle in open rebellion against God's Word. Okay, I was not leaping for joy when I heard that. I was thinking of all the, the challenges that the church would now face because of that. It really put a pit in my stomach for a few days afterwards. But joy wasn't gone following that decision. And I found myself more and more thinking, well, this could be a good thing for the church. The Lord's going to purify and strengthen His bride through this, better preparing her for the test. And that's always true. The roots of joy come from knowing the purpose of our trials, James says. Testing, whatever it may be, intended to give us a greater endurance. To give our faith greater staying power. And You might be thinking, well, my faith would have greater staying power if God would just tell me the reason. I'm sick today because I'd like the reason. My spouse left me because my house was destroyed because... And we want to know. We want to know what good, if any, could come from this. The Lord doesn't give us those details. One, because we couldn't handle it in our humanity. We would just take pride in the fact that we know. And two, because that wouldn't be growing or exercising our faith. It's a a deeper trust and confidence that God is after. Not in our ability to know. But He does not Uh, He does tell us the purpose for our trials. The purpose is that we would mature, be complete, lacking in nothing in our walk with Him. So the, the testing and trials that we face are the very process that God uses to refine us and grow us in Christ's likeness. There's a group of gals who are studying the Bible together. They came across a passage in Malachi 3. It was 3 verse 3. That said, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And these ladies were a little puzzled when they read that. What exactly does that mean? And so one of them offered to do some research and she contacted a silversmith just to ask him and to watch him work. And the silversmith told her that the silver needed to be placed right in the middle of the fire where it was the hottest in order to burn away all those impurities. And the woman sat there and watched. And as they were sitting there, uh, she said, well, do you need to sit here the whole time while the silver is in the fire? And he says, oh yes. If the silver is left in the fire even a moment too long, it would be destroyed. The woman was amazed at this, which, which begs the question, well, how do you know when the silver is fully refined? He says, oh, that's easy. It's when I see my image in it. a picture that needs no explanation. The Lord never takes His eyes off of us. 
through, through the trial, it's refining and restoring us in His likeness. That is a process, sometimes a very painful process, that we must be willing to endure for His glory. And I, I realize that may not be the most comforting in the moment. Answers as to why the trial comes. Why does God allow His children to suffer? James doesn't answer that question directly, but he does affirm God's control over every circumstance. And that He desires the very best for His people. We need to remember that His very best may be different than our very best from day to day. But He's growing and maturing us in Christ-likeness. And that's the, the perfection or completeness that James is speaking of in verse 4. Perseverance is our desire, but perseverance, endurance, that's not even the goal. Godliness is the goal. Spiritual maturity, undivided commitment to Christ is the goal. The fiery trials that we experience, it feels like we're the only one who may be going through it. That's what, what Peter says. That, that's what often reveals our true character. Who we are, where our hope rests. And just like James, Peter says we can rejoice in our sufferings. So if you're going through a time of trial, for most of us, this is a time of testing in some way. You need to know that the Father's eyes are upon you. You will not be lost or destroyed. He loves you more than you know how to love yourself. He's growing you in His image. And in those times when you don't think that you're facing much of a trial, we can use just the smaller everyday tests of our faith. Maybe it's a poor financial decision that there are consequences to. Or someone just hangs up the phone on you. Or your boss is having a bad day and that's starting to rub off on you. Or you and your spouse have a communication flyby. Use those tests in preparation. Working those faith muscles to endure the more costly trials when they do come. So we're to persevere in times of trial. We cannot do this without a proper perspective. And here's where James, he seems to switch gears in verse 5, which he does quite often in this letter. Uh, but there's a verbal link in 5 that seems to, to, to connect it with the previous instruction. Uh, verse 4, the goal is spiritual completeness. Lacking no part of godliness. But in verse 5, if any lacks wisdom, he should ask God for more of it. So there, there's a correlation, even if it's not a real strong one, between growing in godliness, which is the goal, and the wisdom that God gives to His people. I think Pastor Professor Dan Doriani says this well. To turn trials into spiritual maturity and growth, we must have wisdom. We need to ask God for this wisdom so that we can grow from trials and not find them an occasion for sin. If we're going to face trials with joy, we need the wisdom of God. And this isn't wisdom that we can just sort of absorb like a sponge by merely existing or claiming an allegiance to God. We must ask for it. By asking, we are acknowledging that we need it. And that God's going to provide it for us. I mentioned earlier uh, the, the style of James is likened to the Proverbs. Here's Proverbs 2, 6 and 7. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. So as we approach the Lord in prayer, we do so with sincerity. We do so confidently, knowing it's His desire to give us what we ask. And then we must be willing to accept this answer. And James, he spills a lot of ink in verses 6-8, through illustrating the importance of approaching God consistently and with sincerity. If we're only praying when the world seems to be coming to an end, then perhaps we're not all that interested in the wisdom of God. If the wisdom of the world works for us most of the time, and we turn to God every once in a while because you know, it feels right or meets the expectations of those around us, what really makes us think that we'll receive the wisdom and blessing of God? He gives generously. He wants to give according to His character as a perfect Heavenly Father, but we must come to Him wholehearted, with a wholehearted commitment. Okay? Not just like a wave that bounces around and changes its form in a moment. As individuals, as a body in Christ, let's not hesitate in approaching our God for wisdom at all times. Believing that He will provide. He's not keeping a score sheet. He gives willingly and generously. In Matthew 21, Jesus says to His disciples, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. <clears throat> so godly wisdom, it's needed for the right perspective uh, in trials, as well as a perspective on position. <clears throat> wisdom of God enables us to see our position in life the way that God sees us. We might even consider here that the great trial in life for the Christian is a condition of either poverty or a condition of wealth. Both poverty and riches can be a great danger. Yet in both, the disciple of Jesus has reason for boasting. I mean, we love to boast, let's be honest. We live in a society, a nation that loves to boast. The kicker is what are we boasting in? We have no problem boasting about what's in our closets or our cars or our kids or our careers. We can boast in those things. But that's not the boasting of the wise according to James and several other places in the Bible. Here's one, Jeremiah 9. The prophet speaks from the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So thinking of the dispersed Christians who may very well have been facing financial difficulties, losing their status in the surrounding communities, they're reminded to look beyond the cultural perspective and the way that everyone else is evaluating them. Look to God's perspective. The lowly brother who doesn't have hardly anything by way of possessions or doesn't think he possesses much in the way of gifts, 
he can take pride in his status before God. He is rich in what will last. He is rich in Christ. While the wealthy, who may be very tempted to take pride in the wealth and the status that that provides, must remember that those things will be lost. The rich must identify themselves with humility and with the sacrifice of Jesus. I should mention briefly just the textual challenge of verse 10 where James speaks of the rich person but doesn't identify that person like a brother, uh, which he does for the lowly brother in verse 9. At the end of verse 11, he says that the rich man will fade away in his pursuit. So is he talking about judgment here or uh, something else altogether? There are some strong arguments on both sides, but in short, I'm most convinced that James is speaking to brothers and sisters here in the Lord in both cases. The terms for pass away or fade away uh, in reference to the rich man are not the terms that we find for judgment most often in the New Testament. So the emphasis is that the riches aren't going to last. And the man holding the riches isn't going to last. So this person will be in hot pursuit of this wealth and the status it brings and then it's gone. Like the grass that grows and withers. Poor and rich alike must boast in the Lord and in their union with Him. Leads the wise man of Proverbs. Say again, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is the great paradox of position that only the wise in the Lord can perceive and endure. So enduring trial is just a major theme in James's letter. And he seems to bookend this first entry here with verse 12. Re-emphasizes the endurance needed in verses 2 and 3 and then caps it off with the promise of God. A great victory. Triumph awaits those who endure times of trial. You know, when a team you know, wins a championship game, it's, you know, a fadeaway jump shot at the buzzer for the win, a home run in the bottom of the ninth to clinch the series, a soccer goal to win the World Cup, a stretch at the tape to win a gold medal. You know, the, the teams go crazy. The fans go crazy. This probably won't happen for a little while now given uh, the times that we're in. People hugging complete strangers. I mean, there's confetti. It's just a euphoric experience. Why is it so euphoric? Because as image bearers of God, whether we acknowledge His truth or not, we love victory. We recognize and we celebrate greatness. And we celebrate a lot of other things in our sin. But we know how to party after the long haul. And we image our Creator in this. Okay, It's God who throws a party beyond compare when one of His own returns to Him in faith. And when He returns for His own, a party like no other. But church, our celebrations are just a drop in the bucket. Just a glimpse of the glory that awaits those who endure in faith. 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So the, the picture here is that wreath placed on the head of the victor. This is the crown of eternal life. That 
promised reward for faithfulness. The Apostle John would later write to the church in Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Hold on. This promise is for you. In union with Christ, we live triumphantly now. But church, this party is only going to get better. Better beyond imagining when our faith is perfected in glory. Promised reward of eternal life with our God. That, that in itself is tremendous motivation. But it can only be accomplished with a love for our Savior. He has endured where you and I have not endured and will not. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It was out of love for you, out of love for me, that Christ endured. It only gets better. One verse prior, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. You say, wait a minute, that sounds an awful lot like the goal. Perfection. Completeness. Lacking in nothing. There's Jesus. The goal, the crown, the means to get there. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Now we don't see Jesus jumping for joy in the Garden of Gethsemane. But He was a man of great joy. He knew the purposes of His Father and He loved Him, submitting to Him. There is great joy in obedience to one who loves us. Only in Christ can we endure the trials of this life and endure with joy. He has promised life. And one day the faithful will hear those words, well done, enter into the joy of your Master. So as children of faith, we're not always happy, but by endurance we can be confident of God's favor in a life that He's promised to us. Just like the woman who finds out she's carrying a child. She rejoices. Though she knows there is great pain and discomfort ahead in the process, but she's filled with joy the very thought of holding her child. May we endure the trials of today, the trials of tomorrow with joy that is ours in the Lord Jesus. The Puritans have left us some wonderful uh, devotions and prayers. I'd like to close our time with an excerpt of a prayer that they have left for us. Please pray with me. O oh God, May Your fatherly dealings make us partakers of Your holiness. Grant that in every fall we may sink lower on our knees, that when we rise it may be to loftier heights of devotion. May our every cross be sanctified, every loss be gain, every denial a spiritual advantage, every dark day a light of the Holy Spirit, and every night of trial a song. We offer this in Jesus' name. Amen.